Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 478 with my friend Kenny. Today's episode is brought to us by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head to squarespace.com mental for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code mental to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow me slash the show at. Um, I'm going to read a couple of surveys. This is from the Love Survey, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly McGuire. And if you guys are new to the show, uh, the surveys can be accessed at our website. There's about a dozen different ones that, that you can fill out, and that um, really helps I think, uh, expand the scope of the show. And I learned so much from, from reading these. Uh, again, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly McGuire. And she writes, I love while I'm trying to fall asleep, picturing myself hovering just a few inches above the mattress. I have no idea why, but it's the most peace, peaceful thing in the world to me. I look forward to going to bed every night and calming myself down this way. That is fantastic and I also love when I get one that I've never heard before 
and that one is a first. This is an awful moment, uh, and we've read this one on the podcast before, but it's been a while, and I, I just really like it. It's filled out by a woman who calls herself Fran Baxter, and she writes, I lost my husband to suicide a few weeks ago. I know. Just bear with me. It gets better. He ended his years-long battle with chronic pain and depression on his terms, being kind enough to spare me from having to find him or identify his body. I forgive him, even though I miss him dearly. He's out of pain and with a lot of people he admired and cats that we loved. A dear friend who was a lover before I met my husband came over today on his way to visit a relative. I wanted to experience intimacy with someone I trusted as a way of helping me grieve, and my friend was happy to oblige me. We had no set expectations except showing each other enthusiastic consent. I had a feeling I'd cry a few times, and in parentheses, sense memory triggers, and I did. My friend was as kind and loving as he was nearly half my life ago. After the really great sex was over, I could faintly hear my husband's voice. See, I told you my cock wasn't as special as you thought it was. You came just as easily now as you did with me. I couldn't help but laugh and share that with my friend. My husband knew me better than I knew myself sometimes, and it is awfulsome to know that he was right about this too. It is also awfulsome to be able to fuck another man again because my marriage vows have expired. <laughs> that is the definition of awfulsome. This is an email I got from a guy uh, who refers to himself as Mulberry. And he writes, uh, I was wondering, are there any episodes about how to be helpful to a friend in an abusive relationship? What's helpful versus not helpful? Is getting in a screaming match with your friend's partner ever helpful? Or is it better to de-escalate at moments of abuse and focus on supporting the friend? I've had a couple of friends who've been in violently abusive relationships, and I've intervened slash given shelter slash refused entrance to the abuser. Neither of the relationships ended because of my interventions, and it was scary to feel like my friends weren't protected when I wasn't around. I have feelings of guilt around not being able to protect them, even though I know I did the right things at the time. I know abusive relationships only truly end when the person being abused decides they want out. But are there better ways or best practices to support a friend through an abusive relationship? And I wrote him back and said, um, first of all, those are great questions. And just a couple of things that popped into my mind, because this is a hugely complex, you know, issue. And just some things that popped into my mind are, it's important to be aware of the differences between support and trying to change someone. And yelling at their partner is, is not helpful, in, in my opin, opinion. I think something important for you to consider is being aware of your trying to help turning into codependence slash enmeshment. It's a fine line, but support groups around codependence, uh, like CODA, which I understand is great, might be helpful to navigate it. And sometimes helping a friend is helping a friend, and sometimes it's a way to not face our own life or our own pa painful past experiences. So those are those are my my thoughts on it. And the other option is just throw lots of punches at the abuser and then quietly leave town. I have not tried that one, so I can't 
say whether or not it's good. But you get to experience a new apartment. This is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Idiot Disaster Fucker. And he loves the world of Warcraft, where you can exercise introversion and being a social butterfly at the same time. That is fantastic. And he comments to make the podcast better, more nudity. I've been thinking about adding more nudity to it. And just in preparation for it, I do the podcast shirtless, and uh, I've shaved my chest. And I don't know if I'm ready to oil it yet. Maybe I'll start with a nice cream. (laughs) That sounds so creepy. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Beck is Always Wrong about his depression. My depression feels like someone's kicking me when I'm not looking, and I can't figure out where all the bruises are coming from, but they hurt, and everyone says they aren't there. About his ADD. Feels like I have a thousand tabs open in Internet Explorer, and none of them will completely load because they're all going at once. About his anxiety. My anxiety feels like There's constantly a monkey behind me making fun of me, and I'm the only one who can't see it. Oh, that is so good. About his love addiction, it feels like everyone else is in on a secret, and if I can just fall in love with the right person, I'll figure out the secret too. About his codependency, it feels like I'm wandering around a store trying to find my mom, and I keep stopping to help other people find their moms in hopes that That will help me find my mom, but it turns out I don't even have a mom. That one is so good and so, oh my God, so deep. Thank you for that. And about his anger issues, it feels like someone keeps poking me with hot needles and I'm trying to take it and let it go, but eventually I can't. And when I eventually scream, the person with the needle starts crying and now I'm the bad guy snapshot from his life when we start when we started talking about divorce the first thing my ex-husband said was well my mom will be happy she doesn't like you anyway he had always sworn she liked me when i knew she didn't and it made me feel crazy and learning she did didn't just confirmed that everyone is only pretending to like me and that it is one of the ways that we really do a disservice to ourselves is Okay, something may be true. There may be some painful truth that we discover, and then we extrapolate it in this black and white thinking. Oh, if one person doesn't like me, then everybody hates me. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it, and if you've never tried it, uh, it's really nice not having to leave your house to do it via video or uh, audio or text or live chat, uh, whatever you choose. And if you want to know more, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Then fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. We also have a new sponsor, omgyes.com. There's a new study out of uh, the Indiana University School of Medicine uh, in partnership with 
OMG, yes, that shows that people get a significant boost in seemingly unrelated things like overall life optimism and self-confidence from shifting their perspective about sexual pleasure. And omgyes.com is a website designed precisely to trigger this kind of reevaluation, exploration, and inspiration. In partnership with Indiana University and Kinsey Institute researchers, they asked tens of thousands of women, what was the one discovery you've made that really made your pleasure better? And then they found the patterns in those discoveries and they organized all of that stuff into a website, omgyes.com, so everyone can make a great thing even better, women, men, and couples. Visit omgyes.com slash mental to learn more and for a special discount. That's omgyes.com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Caroline, and she writes, I love heavy snow. Did you hear my teeth just whistle? <laughs> like, a, like an old cowboy western. Heavy snow. I'm originally from Northern Europe, but live in the Netherlands. In my home country, there would be these days, a few times a year, where it snowed heavy and fast. Fist-sized soft snowflakes dropping from the sky so fast you can't see more than 10 meters ahead. On those days, I'd take my German shepherd, Oldie, and walk for hours. Not a person in sight and everything pure white. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I love the muffled quality of fresh snow, how it sounds don't echo as much. And then finally, this is a struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Silver Liner. And she writes about her depression, sleeping for 20 hours and still feeling tired. About her anxiety, imaginary needles pricking all over my body. 
about her compulsive eating. Food coma feels like happiness until you wake up. And about her love addiction. I love you more than anything on this world. Until you love me back, then there must be something wrong with you. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with uh, my friend Kenny, who I've known for, I don't know, probably what, eight, ten years? Something like that? Crazy. Well, I, th- I think it's at least, t- oh yeah, definitely 10 years. Yeah. I, I don't know what. Maybe Gra- more. Gracie was completely quiet until I hit the, the record button. And uh, of course now she wants all kind of attention. Uh, I've been wanting to sit down and uh, record an episode with you, Kenny, for a while, because uh, you told me a little bit about your childhood uh, a couple of times, and <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. You you grew up in, well, let Let's start with you sharing what your childhood was like and some memories that you that you have. Where'd you grow up? Okay. So, um, thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, west side of Manhattan on 10th Avenue. Um, and you're how old? I'm 46. Okay. So, I grew up in the, I mean, I was a baby, like a little kid in the uh, in the 70s and then in the 80s i was you know in my teens and i was in my prime in the 90s mm-hmm. but all on the west side um i grew up in an irish puerto rican household my neighborhood was predominantly irish and um so and and my my mother was irish so naturally the and my, my father was really never not around much mm-hmm. so naturally because of the neighborhood being predominantly irish and my mother being irish um most of my cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents that came in and out of our house were of my mother's side so mm-hmm. it was all mostly an irish um influence i'd say yeah. um and was there any um, prejudice towards your father for being Puerto Rican, or for you and your siblings for being half Puerto Rican? I think that I think there was. Um, I think there was, and I definitely I can I can say that um, I was never really proud of my last name. I never liked it. I, you know, I, I saw a lot of kids growing up who to, who, who were who had their mother's last name. Mm-hmm. And I never, and I always wish I had my mother's last name, not my, my not my father's last name, because my last, you know, my last name is a strong Latin ha- last name. Right. And my mother's is a pretty strong Irish last name. Right. And 
all my friends were Irish. You know what I mean? I had I had some Puerto Rican friends, but there was the guys I hung around with were all you know from the you know the West Side and and Irish guys, and so I I really um uh, gravitated uh, to that uh, ethnicity, mm-hmm. I'd say. Uh, didn't know a word of Spanish um, except the curses. You learn that in the street and shit, you know what I mean? Right. And in school and stuff. So I knew how to say some pretty funny curses <laughs> in Spanish, but that was it. And what what did your dad do for uh, a living? Um, up till probably, I'd say, the age of... Till I was probably the age of maybe... Seven or eight, my father worked at a photo lab developing eight by 11 uh, photos taken by, I guess, photographers. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he'd he bring home uh, eight by 11 uh, pictures of athletes and stars. And he was mm-hmm. just in the back then, you know, developing photos yeah it was all so this was a professional photo lab as opposed to a consumer kind of photo yeah it was professional it was huge industrial i'd say gotcha it was a huge photo lab and he ran the presses or whatever and stuff like that i I mean and in fact he was he must have been doing it for a good amount of time prior to even my me being born i'd say because the, the the boss of the photo lab became my godfather and i never i don't even i mean i know his first name i never seen him i haven't seen the guy since i was probably seven or eight years old and what did your dad do after that um did he live with you guys yeah he he lived with us there there was uh i i there was three boys and three girls and uh and my father was working at a photo lab my mother was just a stay-at-home mom taking care of the kids and stuff like that and uh my father was uh, an alcoholic. His his uh, go-to drink was Bacardi rum. He used to walk around with it in his back pocket. He was he he was the his image. The image of of my father as a kid was uh, a brown paper bag with a back pocket size bottle of uh, Bacardi rum tucked in the back in the back where he would be taking swigs, tattoos up and down his his arms, and. A white T-shirt rolled up with a pack of Marlboro tucked in the top, uh, top part of his shoulder, carrying right. his, his Marlboro cigarettes. Uh, and he was pretty, pretty good shape, you know. Um, and uh, he he had a he had an alcohol problem. It was it was, it was pretty bad. He uh, he would get paid on Fridays and um, not not come home till Sunday. Like he'd, he'd get his check, and we wouldn't. My mother wouldn't see him until Sunday, and he'd come in the door ossified, drunk on Sunday, with no money, and it it would be the beginning of uh, domestic violence in my house. My mother would get beat up pretty badly, um, and uh, it, that was a that was a norm. The normal, like the the beatings that he he gave my mother were pretty bad. Um, one time. Uh, my mother was trying to get me and my brothers into the shower. It was like, get in the shower, get in the shower. You know, we're kids, so we didn't want to get in the shower. Mm-hmm. We're like, we used to go, I'm first, I'm, I'm last, I'm second, third. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm last, I'm second. So whoever whoever said second, 
then the first whoever didn't say nothing had to go first. So it sucked when you know when when you wound up being first because you had to stop what you were doing and get in the shower right now. And, the, and the, the, whoever said I'm last would be able to chill for a little while. Mm-hmm. So my mother was we were arguing over getting in the shower. And my mother was screaming at us, and um, the doorbell rang or or there was a knock at the door and. Um, my father, my mother goes to the door and opens the door, and my father, he goes, what the fuck is all this screaming about? And he I, didn't have a key to the apartment? No, he, he didn't have a key. Had he moved out at that point? I don't, I, you know, um, no, he didn't move out. He lived there. Oh, okay. And he didn't have a key, but he either knocked or, or rang the bell. Gotcha. Or, you know, I, don't, I know he didn't, I know he didn't have a key, because he, maybe he did, he, he was drunk. Anyway, besides the point. But... She said, "What?" He, she opens the door, and I'm I'm in a line I'm in line of sight. I could see the door. I see who's who's at the door. I was standing in the hallway, and I could look down the hallway and see who it was. And I I, I watched this happen. Um. She opens the door. He goes, "What the fuck is all the screaming going on in here?" And I think my mother said, "Oh, shut the fuck up," or you know, or "Shut, or shut up," and he just dropped her with a hook, bang, right, right, right in the eye. She doubled over into like a turtle position, and he and he had a cane, and he swung the cane and broke it over her back, snapped it in half. Jesus, right over my mother's back, snapped the cane in half, uh, and I watched it. You know what I mean? And um, it was our fault. You know, my mother just got her shit beat up because we wouldn't get in the shower, and she was screaming at us. You know. Did did she say to you that it was your fault, or that's what you told yourself? No, she didn't say that. Yeah. I felt I felt like it was my fault because me and my brothers were arguing. And what what went through your mind at at that time when you saw your father do that about who he was and your relationship with him and how you felt about him after that? When he broke the cane over her back, um, and the shit snapped snapped like a toothpick. Right across her back. Um, I don't remember, man. I got, I got. If I, if I, if I could remember, I'd say I was kind of numb. Which I think is pretty common when when brains get overloaded with stuff. Yeah. That's a pretty pretty common. I had a numbness about me. Yeah. I, I didn't. I, I don't think I had. I mean, I'm sure I was scared, but as far as being able to really identify with the feelings, right. I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any. There, I'm sure there was a little bit of fear for my mother, but that might have been it. And so then, what happened uh, after your dad stopped doing the photo lab thing? Well, how he stopped doing the photo lab is. <laughs> The weekend drinking continued, and uh, one weekend, we're, it turns out, um, well, before I tell you this, I'll say that um, my father was a, a womanizer and a cheater and an alcoholic, and not just the weekend drinking that was mm-hmm. taking place. There were things going on in the, during the week and every day that that created other fights, like him coming home with hickeys all around his neck from other women. My mother hearing from other people in the neighborhood that my father was walking down the street holding someone else's hand, um, and uh, so those were that's who he was, and and then the drinking and everything was uh, just t- high high uh, 
high level. And then uh, one weekend, he gets out of work, and he, he used to hang out with all the Puerto Ricans in the, in the parking lot on the west side. It was a, Back then, they had a lot of parking lots in the city, you know. Now it's all covered over and built in with, with high-rises and shit. Uh, but this one particular parking lot, all the Puerto Ricans used to sit in the middle of it because they ran the, the parking of the cars as they came in and stuff, and they'd sit there and play dominoes. And a car went out of control in the parking lot and ran and hit and just smashed through the Domino's table and hit everybody that was in in striking distance. Uh, and my father was one of them. And um, he broke a bunch of ribs and his leg and uh, was uh, pretty badly injured. Had a leg. He had a cast from his toes up to his hip, uh, broken ribs and everything. <clears throat> so now he's home. <laughs> And uh, bedridden and whatever. And uh, that was the beginning of some pretty dark days. Like, they were, it was already fucked up. But after he, after that happened, he um, he, he, he was out of work for, for quite a while. And um, then he lost his job. That's that's the that's what I rem how I remember it. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he lost his job, probably got fired, laid off, whatever. But mm. I know he didn't. I know he was out for a while because of the injury, uh, and, and his legs his leg was jacked up, his ribs were jacked up. In fact, um, that might have been that might have happened before the sh the incident where he broke the cane over a back because he had a cane. You understand? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so he had the cane, so he was already injured. It was at, it was post injury where yeah. he he broke the, the the um the cane over her back, so he was already fired and he was you know on the street, and it was it was the eighties and uh, crack hit, crack cocaine and um he just uh, I don't know how because I was too young to remember, but he and I wasn't really uh, I was I was I was still in the house and and so out in the street uh he was engaging in all these activities with uh with um pimping and prostitution and and uh drugs and crack and heroin and everything and selling it selling it and and, and doing it he became yeah. he it eventually i'm sure it started with selling mm -hmm. trying to make money because he had no job and then the next thing and then he became his best customer and started consuming uh, massive amounts of, you name it, and uh, I, I remember. Um, so he was strung out on crack and living in crack houses. And back then, crack houses were were pretty new. Like you, like a crack house was something that was all of a sudden a thing. Like mm -hmm. they didn't exist like that. They might have been shooting galleries and shit for heroin addicts, but like a crack house was 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 new. It was it was a place where people just hung out and smoked fucking crack, you know. And my father was thrown out of my house and was like a, a, a like a super in the in a building on Forty Eighth Street and running the building, maintaining the building. It was how he was. It's how he was uh, being able to stay there. He had, my my mother threw him out, <laughs> and. uh she would send oh so he he started to he started my father started to get arrested from doing drugs and mm. and crime and he would get he got sentenced to prison time and he'd go away and he'd come and he'd do a year or two 
come home. And in that time, he was, he was up in state prison carving out these, like, hearts and fucking uh, uh, really nice, like, crafty, uh, um, like, pieces that he would carve out of, out of, out of soap. Oh, soap. Right. He would carve it out of soap and write in it and paint it and shellac it and do all these creative shit, things with bars of soap and send them home to, to us and my mother. We thought it was the greatest thing in the world, these little fucking, these little... You know, um, tinkets or whatever you, I don't know what they were, what you would call them, but they were, they were, they were carvings. They were, they were, um, you know, like molds. Mm -hmm. Did you keep any of them? We had a bunch of them, but you know, they were, they were very fragile. Yeah. I don't have any, but that'd be something if they, if there was some still around. Um, he made these, these things and, uh, he'd send them home and then, you know, obviously he, my mother's got six kids with the guys, so they would, you know, start to talk and, uh, We'd go up to state prison to visit him, you know. What's that like visiting your dad in prison? It was it was kind of strange, you know. You go up, you see your father; he's all healthy and shit, and and, and you know he's got a little prison build on him, and he's fine, got some food in him. Uh, he's in state greens, and you know, uh, you know, you, you're happy. You haven't seen him for a while, you know, and and uh, he, you know, and. You know, you got other kids there, and there's a bus ride involved, and you know, going through, going through all of the security and everything. That was pretty, pretty interesting. It's, it's, um, it's all just um, not normal for kids or anybody. Like anyone who's got to go through that process. You have to go through some, some. You have to experience some extra changes, some shit that doesn't make sense. Also, the fact that your dad looks better in prison than he does out of prison. You know, oh, that's yeah. that's kind of odd. Oh yeah, real good, clean, clear skin, just um, well groomed. Um, and so, go ahead. So um, we'd go to see him in prison. And him and my mother would be, would start writing. He'd write my mother from prison, and they'd you know try to work things out. She'd she'd give him another chance, and, and so she wasn't seeing anybody. They weren't not that officially I know. divorced. No, they were never married. Okay, not that I know of. As far as I know, my mother would my mother never um, was not she. If she was, if she was ever with anyone else, it wasn't something that anyone knew about. Right. It, it seemed to us like she was just doing her job as a mother. And so when he wasn't earning, how was she oh, supporting you she, guys? She was on welfare. Yeah. We knew everything about face-to-face, -face, Section 8. Not Section 8, face-to-face. -face, uh, she had to go down to the welfare. And, and uh, you know, uh, she she always had to keep up to date with uh, with uh, the welfare system. And they were, we, we were on food stamps. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, I was, I mean, there were people who had food stamps, but uh, I just, I, it was, it was fucking embarrassing, dude, in front of my, it, it, there were a lot of kids in my neighborhood and in, my, in the street and in the stores and in the bodegas, and you come downstairs with some food stamps in your hands and you buy some shit, you're going to be made fun of, you know? So I would stand in the back, act like I forgot what I needed to buy and be looking around and all my friends and wait for somebody I knew who was in the store to leave. And then once they left, I'd go up to the counter and try to make my purchase real fast because I don't want no one to see me with the food stamps. I would Im imagine that to this day, shame is a pretty common emotion for you. Oh, yeah. 
for sure. It wasn't just that. We had head lice. In my, me and my brothers, it was six of us. We got sent home for head lice probably 10, 15, 20 times a year for, from first fucking first grade up to, you know, probably sixth grade. Um, I mean, it was embarrassing getting pulled out of class, fucking them running ice cream sticks through your hair to check because they don't want to touch the bugs in your head. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, so it was so hard for my mother to manage it because there were six of us. And the shits right. would jump from one head to another. She's all alone. She's got to run, you know, put head bug shampoo in all our heads. She's got to use the, the, the lice comb and all that shit. And uh, so that was traumatizing, you know. The food stamps, the fucking head lice, um, the filth, the roaches. Yo, you don't know what, you don't know roaches a roach infestation i mean you could say you do but i i fucking lived it i'm talking they were in the pictures they were they were in every single dark place that 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 they could be and if you turned the lights off for and then you came out later on and you turned them lights on they were everywhere everywhere on a stove on the counters on the floor scattering roach infestation not only so we had that. We had head lice. Um, we were on food stamps. My mother, she did the best she could. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm sure she, there was, there are people with more motivation and energy that can probably maintain a, a home or a household mm-hmm. better than that. But I don't know if she, I don't know what she was going through or what she was experiencing. I know that that's the way it was. Did you, how would you cope with, the emotions that would come up in you. Drugs, violence. Well, <clears throat> violence for sure. Violence for sure. Because uh, my mother my mother had five brothers. Um, they were all knock-around guys. What does that mean? Bang- bangers, fighters, brawlers. Uh, not pushovers. Street guys. My father was a street guy who had who also had about five brothers um and then there was me and my brothers and we we would experience and learn how to f- just fight on each other you know was it encouraged by the men in your family or absolutely yeah. address the issue never let no one step on your toes um strike first strike hard um don't let no one play you would be a phrase. Um, and so, um, violence was something I, I took, took, a, uh, took two first, I'd say. Um, did you find a release? In I it? did a huge, huge release. Talk about that. Talk if there are any moments you can remember where the emotions, uh, were strong <laughs> once you decided to, respond with violence what what would you think or feel I mean, it was such an amazing feeling um paul i gotta tell you um you know i didn't know it took me a while it took me a year a few years to realize that unleashing all this bottled up anger and pain on another individual 
was going to release it was going to give me ability to let let the you know the air out a little bit i didn't know that until i and when i did i definitely wanted more of it um uh was I would say? it mostly be with your fists initially yes and then whatever is in my in my in reach um and and there was no there was no boundaries or limits or or hesitation it was just nothing nothing i was an animal dude i was i was a i was just like a a gremlin you know what i mean um there was a time also that i i was afraid to put my hands on somebody i never wanted to hurt nobody i was just a little kid it's like i don't want to hurt nobody you know i was just a kid and then all those things start to happen and then uh you know you have all the shame this guilt this fear this anger and uh in, in this abandonment and loneliness and um and then when you and it's you have so then you have all this built up tension and emotion and then uh you know i started I, kids in the neighborhood wouldn't make fun of you ah, he got sent home for about headlights today um ah he look at a food stamp welfare recipient you know um your father's a fucking your father was walking down the street with a prostitute, ha, ah, you know. Um, so when shit like that happened, um, and I, I was, I wasn't. I you wasn't, would punch people. I, I would strike. I would beat the shit out of somebody, um, and I was very angry, very angry. Um, but I would say, you know, you have your little kid, your little elementary school scraps where you kind of learn a little bit about the the art of engagement and stuff like that and physical physical uh conflict but uh it got worse it, it uh it got bad because so i'll get back to my father coming at home from prison and um father come home from prison so my father's come home from prison and the cycle would repeat itself mm -hmm. crack drugs crack houses prison do a state sentence, come home, crack, drugs. Oh, come home. My mother would let him back in. I can't forget that. So he, he went to prison. He came home. My mother let him back in the house. All of us six kids were like, daddy's home, daddy's home. You know, we want my father back. We want my father. He's our father. We love him. Come in the house. And then the cycle would repeat itself. And he'd get, do the same thing over again, go back to prison. Same thing. It probably happened, I'd say, three three times at a minimum, maybe four so from like the age of seven till about 13, till I was about 13 years old, um, my father did most of that time in prison, right? Um, but the last prison sentence and all of those years from my, from my, from birth until that age, the only one who, 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 who held it down was my mother. She took care of us. She was our, she was our, our saving grace. She was, she was our, you know, our protector. My father was never there, you know, and when he was, he was abusive and destructive. So. And your, and your childhood brain would forget about all the bad shit and just hope that your dad was going to be the, the, the good moments that dad, oh, yeah. you had with dad. Yeah, Cause he was our father. We loved him, you know, yeah. and then when him and my mother were doing good and in a good place, it was nice to see, you know, that they were our parents. 
and then we had three little sisters. So I don't want to forget that. It was me, me and my brothers. It was three boys, three girls, and the boys were the older, oldest, mm-hmm. and the girls were young. So uh, around the last state bid that I recall, whether it was the third or fourth, um, he came home and. As the cycle started to repeat itself for the, for the final time, it wasn't his final state prison sentence, but it was it was the beginning of the end of my home structure mm-hmm. in the home that I once knew. Um, he he, it was my childhood home. We were we were about thirteen. I was about thir- I was about thirteen years old, and I noticed my mother started to not be around, and uh, like something wasn't right. Like she was in the house, but she was in the room, mm-hmm. and um, I was like, "What the fuck's going on? Why is she? She hasn't been out in three days. She's been in the room for three days, and uh, then she'd be out, and then a week or two go by, and my mother would be MIA again, but in the house, but just like in the room. And we started to put two and two together. I mean, kids ain't dumb, and um. My mother was in that free basement with my father. You know what I mean? They were smoking crack and shit. And uh, we used to go in there when they were sleeping and find big-ass blowtorches, fucking cans, canisters. And we'd want to light it because we were fucking knuckleheads. And we'd want to see the f- blow- play with a blowtorch. Um, one time I walked in and pushed the door open. And my mother was sitting on the bed, on the end of the bed with her back to me. And she turned around, turned her head, and looked towards the entrance of the door. And I seen a face. And and I, as I pushed the door open, I felt something like behind the door. And I pulled it, looked behind the door, and it was my father. And he was he was holding in like uh, the, the hit that he just took. And he was like, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing back there? And he's like, <laughs> he couldn't hold it in no more. And he blew out a big ass cloud of crack, and uh. So uh, there was that, and then. Uh, and what do you remember thinking or feeling in that? Well, I was already aware that them they were in there smoking crack, right. and I knew that's what he was. That's what he was doing. But it was, I'll never, forget, I'll never forget that visual. You know, of him with his chest all puffed up because he was holding in the hit that he just blasted, trying to hide from you. Yeah, he was hiding from me behind the door, but I was banging, I was bumping into him. Right. I, something wasn't letting me open the door fully, and I looked behind the door, and he was in there. He was back there with a fucking hit a crack in his chest. And uh, so I closed the door, whatever. And uh, I started to, I, of my brothers and sisters, I, start, I started to uh, rebel. I was like, fuck them. Fuck my mother. Fuck my father. I don't want nothing to do it. What really made me say fuck my mother was of all the um, embarrassment, all the, the, the shame that I had because my parents, my, my father was this way. When I saw my mother do it, when my mother went that way, I was, it was the end for me. For me, it was like. It was worse yeah, for was you like, then. It was worse than him. When my, my mother chose that, that route, I was so heartbroken and so devastated. Plus, she was your last hope. Yeah, she was She was the the backbone. And when, when, I, when she did that. We were abandoned in my eyes. They abandoned us, all of them. And it was and, and it was my job to take care of my brothers and sisters. My job. In your mind then? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't my and probably literally as well. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't joking. Um, because my mother wasn't even available anymore. Really, you know, I couldn't. You know, she wasn't doing handling the things. The deal we got kicked out. We were in Catholic school from first to sixth grade, and my mother worked at, over at Bingo at the church. She worked the Bingo. She'd call the numbers for for Bingo, and she'd you know set up the Bingo tables, and they gave her a discount on the tuition for Catholic school. And uh, because of all of that, she stopped showing up, and they 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 threw me me they threw all of us out of the Catholic school. We couldn't pay the tuition. My mother, my mother was getting high on welfare checks and everything else. Um, were you guys going hungry? We'd have to go knock on doors for for tea, uh, for for dollars. My mother would send us around the corner to neighbors and ask for a few dollars to to get uh, some milk, some milk and cookies, or some some bread for the house. We were borrowing money. My mother had to, but she'd send us to go borrow the money from neighbors that lived on on our floor. Neighbors that lived on our floor, f- parents of our friends. Mm-hmm. My, mother, my mother sent me up here, asked me if she can borrow $5. My mother sent us up here, if you see if you had $2 to get a loaf of bread. I, I can't imagine how humiliating that. The that worst, is. the worst. So when did you turn to to drugs? So when my mother went that route, I wasn't willing to deal with the, the, the shame. I wasn't willing to deal with the embarrassment and... To have because I it was so traumatizing all these years, my father being like like my friends were devastating. They were fucking vicious, and they would talk shit about my father and and my life, and it was it was hurtful, man. And so, to, the thought of my mother walking down the street like a crackhead was was a no go for me. It was like, all right, well, I'm done. Fucked all of them. Fuck, I'm, I'm out. And I uh. I ran away. I left my brothers. I, I wouldn't say I ran away for like cross state lines or or left. Mm-hmm. I never left the neighborhood, but I didn't and I didn't leave for long. I was a little kid. I was thirteen years old. My mother came out looking for me. I wasn't coming home, and she she found me. She kicked me in the ass, and she told me get home. Let's go get the fuck home. And so she's dragging me down the street. I'm like fuck you, and uh. I'm a, I'm a hurt kid. I want to, you know, it makes me want to cry because I can remember that, that, uh, that emotion. I mean, that, that, I can remember it. And I'm like, fuck you, man. I ain't going nowhere with you. I hate you. I told her I fucking hate you. And, uh, I never even told my father I hate you. But I told her I hate you for what you did and for what you're doing. And, uh, she, uh, Shortly after that, threw in a towel, and all the years of my my father come, leave, getting thrown out by, thrown out by my mother, he always found a way back into our lives, and my mother couldn't she couldn't do it no more. Especially after her thirteen year old son tells her mm-hmm. that he hates her, it must have struck. It must have done something because she was she she left, and she told all of us. Me and my she told me she told my brothers and sisters. Get your clothes on. Let's go. We're leaving. We're 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 gone. She said, I, "If I can't get rid of this fucking piece of shit, then I gotta go." And uh, she packed up all my brothers and sisters, and I told her, "I ain't going nowhere with you." And she left with everybody but me. I stayed with my father. I told her, "I'm not going nowhere with you. I fucking hate you." 
and uh and she left she went downtown to Fulton Chelsea area and uh <clears throat> I stayed in the, my childhood apartment um and uh one we had a three bedroom apartment all of a sudden I had my own room so that was cool cuz you know you always want your own room as a kid um so I had my own room and uh we had an extra room and uh within about 2 weeks I'd say my little brother left down there and came up he didn't want to, he didn't want to be down there was she still getting high she was yeah. she in fact she never stopped i would say she she functioned but she never stopped until even her passing it was a large factor in my mother you know not living she died at 62 she smoked two packs a day did coke probably up to maybe a couple months before she died um but my little brother came back uptown and he uh moved in with us so me and my little brother had a, a bedroom of our own and my sisters and my and my older brother stayed with my mother they were in, they got enrolled in school down there and uh that started a life of drugs and crime for me and my little brother um my father, were you in a gang or was this just kind of uh, a loose association of guys with uh, schemes? No gangs, no gangs, no names. Just if that's what, if if was it just like a, a the same crew of guys? Yeah, we were a crew. We were we were a crew of neighborhood guys with some generational um, influence. That was passed down from older guys. We had a very strong, strong influences. I'd say strong, strong examples of uh, the life on the street. Gotcha. Um, and would they? I, I come from an Irish neighborhood where uh, where the Irish, uh, you know, kind of controlled, and uh, and so we had we had we all aspired to. Um, I'd say evolve into that into that life. The mob, um, the mob, and any type of organized crime was was uh, something that we we uh, we try to model our lives after. Um, and it was it's pretty uh, it was pretty uh, pretty. It was, it was. I would say we were, we we were coming up around the tail end of it, mm -hmm. where it was like uh you know in the, in the eighties, in the eighties early nineties it was kind of dying out. Guys were get, got, getting life sentences and uh, rack, Rico Act, people were getting put away for forever. And um, but we you know we we were, I was I was probably sixteen seventeen years old and you know fifteen from from the time I was on the street and and can read. Um, I was reading about, you know, ma mafia and and mob organized crime, regardless of the uh, of the uh, ethnicity. Where if there was an organized crime group, you know, it was in the papers in the city. You come out, come out your building. There's grocery store. There's a bunch of stack of newspapers there, and then you would see the, the headlines on t on the top page, and you grab it and say, "Oh shit, look and read this." And a lot of times, it can't. It was about people I know, people in my neighborhood, you know. Um, 
I'd come out my house. Oh, so so anyway, my father wound up turning my house into a crack house. He 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 started selling crack out of my house, and uh, and um, and using crack out of my house. And I had local local neighborhood, uh, you know, drug dealers uh, kind of creating. I mean, operating out of my house. My right. mother was no longer there. My childhood was a drug den. My childhood home was the new spot. It became the new spot, and uh, this I was out on the street with no parental guidance anymore. My mother was gone, my sisters, and and I, and I now I'm downstairs and on the avenue, hanging out to all hours of the night with no one telling me shit, and uh, no one was ever going to tell me shit again. Except, and did you find freedom and exhilaration in that, the, despite the sadness and anger? No, I didn't. I was always, I always, I was always sad about. Um, my my home and my and my family and the way things turned out. I I always wished that things would go back to normal. I always did, and and even more when things were dark, when times got dark for me and I wound up in situations and environments. I just wish that things could have been different. Are there any that spring to mind? Any situations? The dark days, well, yeah. you know, um, being shrunk, I eventually started to use drugs. Right. And when I was peeking through peak holes and underneath doors and fucking. Because you know, of the paranoia of smoking crack? No, just not the paranoia. I would say more the come down. More the, more the come down when it was all over and, you, and, and your life's, you know, up in shambles and you don't, and you just been on a mission on a, getting high for six days, haven't slept, haven't ate, you lost 15, 20 pounds. Um, you know, you've been just acting out and doing fucking deviant shit, and you're like, "What the fuck is?" But you're just a kid. You don't, you don't, you don't know what the fuck's going on. How did this happen? How the fuck did this happen? You know. And uh, so when you're in those places mm -hmm. and you're trying to come out of it, and you're just like full of remorse and regret. Those are the times you say, man, I just wish fucking things could be go back to normal. Kind of like a, a prison of your own making, or Without at least of your family's own oh, yeah. making. It's Creed, Creed came out with an album in 1996, I think it was, called My Own Prison. And uh, on the cover was a guy with his head in his hands, balled up in the corner. And I could relate to that album cover like no one else. That album cover was me. So were the lyrics. Um, and they became a good band, a band, one of my favorites. Um, so, I mean, this is a pretty long story, right? It's okay. Um, so, uh, I, I don't want to forget this part. I just don't want to leave this this part out. While my mother, before my mother left the house, um, and moved out with my brothers and sisters, her brother, her younger brother, was an intravenous drug user, and he was in my life. He was my favorite uncle. He was my mother's little brother. Mm. Was diagnosed with um, AIDS in 1988 in, from prison. They let him out because at the time. They they knew nothing and there, there was nothing they could do for him. He they released him before his before they just released him because he was going to die and they they didn't want him. 
Warner, it was like a mercy release. Mm-hmm. He still had years on his sentence, and he released him. He had been in prison in and out just like my father, and every time he'd come out like the Hulk, jacked up, huge tree trunk neck muscles from, you know, mm-hmm. working out in jail. This time he came out like a like a stick. And uh and he and he passed away in nineteen eighty eight of, of AIDS and um that was pretty hard for me because he was my favorite uncle. I was fourteen when he passed away. Um so that was one of that was one of a, a traumatizing time in my life. Um another another scenario I would say my first um my first experience with um death was a childhood friend of mine he was the goalie on my hockey team uh we were we were all you know we'd all be out and about skating and hanging out on the avenue and shit and we'd hang out there used to be this abandoned highway wasn't Joe Mullen from yeah, your neighborhood Joe, Joe Mullen Brian Mullen both from like blocks in my neighborhood, like everybody knew them. Everybody knew the Mullins. Yeah. They were role models for all of us. Everybody played hockey in my neighborhood. Yeah. For uh, for the listener, uh, they were NHL stars in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Joe Mullen was the first American-born hockey player to score five hundred goals. Um, Lean into the mic just a little bit, if you would. Uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, oh, so so they were all hanging out up on this. The, the the West Side Highway used to have an elevated portion that was abandoned, and uh, I mean, it tore it down in in probably the early nineties, start of the the nineteen nineties. But my neighborhood used to hang out up there and barbecue, listen to radios, is when and smoke pot, take mescaline and acid, and trip out up there on the on the, on the highway and. It's where everybody hung out, and my friend was up there, uh, and he decided to skate. Oh, there was this homeless man that lived up there, and he lived in a shack on one end of the of the highway, and we used to throw rocks at him. We'd go up there, his kids, and fucking throw rocks at his house, his little homeless hut, and throw rocks at him and shit, and then he'd chase us, and we'd run away. Well, one night, they were up there hanging out, and... My friend decided to skate down the pier, down the highway, on his own. And this homeless guy uh, on a skateboard or inline on, on skate? skates, in, on roller skates, yeah. quads. I got you. At the time, we weren't, we didn't have rollerblades yet. And uh, my friend skated down, and this homeless guy ran up on him and stabbed him in the head with a pitchfork. What? He was fourteen years old. Yeah, he was fourteen years old. He stabbed him in the head with a pitchfork, and then my buddy fell. Tried to uh, try to. Um, Get get away, and the guy proceeded to stab him multiple times with a pitchfork, and uh, and my buddy. So you seen him? He dropped, and then there was a, there was a, a, a like a stretch of blood where he was trying to move. He moved a few feet, and then he fell, and there was more blood, and then he more, and then he crawled more and more and more, and then he just collapsed and died right there on the spot. And uh, he never showed up. Somebody went. People were looking for him, and then they went down to the the. Down the other end of the highway, and they found him, and he was dead. And so we were all devastated. We were all devastated in the neighborhood. My friend was murdered. He was 14 years old by a homeless man with a pitchfork. Um, we uh, what, what was the guy arrested? They caught him. Um, 
and he served probably 25 years or something. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if he's probably, this is back in 1984. No, this was 85 or 84, I think. Um, man, I could go on for days with stories. I think we get a, we get a pretty good picture that of the, the drama of it. Yeah. I so I want to jump forward to today. It's, you've got how many days sober off of drugs, get, getting high? 12. 12 days. And, uh, maybe 10 years that I've, that I've known you, you put together some time, you put together three months, six months, a year, and then you relapse on crack and you disappear for days and you got a wife and you got kids, you got a house, you got a job. What, what, what is going through your mind and your body when you make the decision to get high again? Are there certain things that are, well, you feel are pushing you towards that? Um, well, it it was crack for a long time. Then it became then I hadn't done crack for years, and I did. Uh, I started to relapse on pain meds like mm-hmm. Vicodin, um, uh, Oxy. Percocet, Oxycontin. I got into all of that, and that was my go-to. I don't know, um, you know. Um, I never. For, for me, I always never really close the door on that life like the door has been cracked open is is it because there's a voice in your head that says i can get away with it one more time without drastic consequences or is it that i don't i can't imagine living without this escape hatch yeah it, that's what it is i think it's the latter um you know i've all, i've never really slammed the door on 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 that that crutch that that uh ability to not feel people make they make they they make something but they never make a decision i don't know if you know the other part of that but they make they make a a commitment or they make a commitment but never a real decision mm-hmm. and uh like yeah I, i'm i'll you know i was just doing it but a, an actual decision where it's done never again I mean, I did. I thought I did, but clearly I didn't. And it's been it's been a it's been a, a life vest for me for so long. You know, um, the whole criminal mind, being criminal minded, has saved me, and it's what fed me and my family. And I don't mean my children. I mean my brothers and sisters, because when uh. When shit hit the fan and I was 13 years old, this guy, this big drug dealer in the neighborhood, uh, took me under the wing and put me on a corner and had me making hand-to-hand sales to uh, all of his clientele. And I established uh, this, what he called face on the, on the street. Everyone knew my face. They knew I was the guy, the go-to guy. People from all over the fucking region would come and they knew that i was the guy i was out i was on the block and it was my block it was it was his block but it was my block because he was never there right and um when shit didn't work out he was he was selling drugs in my he he was storing all his shit in my house because my father was Mm. a crackhead so 
he he let uh he, he was paying me a salary while storing the material in my house and my father was uh was uh you know mad that he felt he wasn't being taken care of enough and uh so he, he put an end to it my son's not working for you no more but he knew i was selling drugs on the corner you know that was mm-hmm. my and i was but after my father made me stop selling drugs for this guy i started selling my own drugs and the, the guy didn't want problems with my father because my father was kind of a maniac he was a real he was a he was a little bit of a, of a sick dude you know and so you know this particular dude didn't i i know for sure that he 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 didn't want any part of that. He didn't want any part of that, so he just stood. Da- he stand. He stood down. He was like, "I'm not fucking with that. Fuck it. This kid is stepping on my toes." And I started selling to his customers, and I became. Let's put it this way: from the age of 13 years old till 25, I never had an issue creating a buck. I could turn ten dollars into twenty, and then f- keep flipping it within seconds. I. Ha- I mean, and days. If you gave me a hundred dollars, I'd turn it into a grand in a couple of days, because everybody knew me, and I sold everything, and I knew where to get everything, and I knew where, I know who was who, and and I was the the most interact. I, I interacted most with the street that out of anyone I knew. No one, no one was. Did you get busted? I did. I I, I made I I I've made three felony sales to to undercover cops in my in those days. Um, I uh, was involved in a, a large heroin operation with a friend of mine who who who, who committed a homicide. He killed some dude, shot him, um, shot him eighteen times, um, and is serving a twenty eight years prison sentence. Um, I did I did probably two years in prison a year in state prison a year in in rikers island and i did three years in drug rehabilitation so i've been in institution for at least five years of my life and and so which clique would you join up with when you were because most most prisons and jails it's along racial lines no it is out in the west coast it's not like that in new york i mean well the funny thing is that's a good question it's funny because i always um being half Irish, half Puerto Rican, I had the ability to to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I was I wouldn't I, mean, I wasn't part of the black clique, but I could hang out with the white boys and I could hang out with the the, the, poor, the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Either place I went, I was accepted one hundred percent, one hundred percent by both both sides, and they did not see me as the other. If I was with the Puerto Ricans, I was a fucking Puerto Rican. And if I was with the white boys, I was a white boy, and it was a good. It was a good little. It was a good. It, it was. It was kind of. It was always something. It was. I felt it was a blessing. It, it. It. It protected me. That. That. That kind of ability to. To. Uh, coexist mm-hmm. in hostile environments, you know, with different groups, and not be seen as somebody just be accepted by by so i was able to live i was able to eat and 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 i was able to have a lot of um support from from more than what most people can 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 pull from i'd say uh yeah so i did time in prison and uh um and, and jails and institutions and uh 
Um, and then I did a lot of a lot of drugs and alcohol for a lot of years. And, um, and how did you wind up uh, falling into the job you have today, which is a uh, we won't get too specific, but it's a legal job and it's working. It's a union job. And how did you make the transition from all of this into uh, something that's legal? Um, and that has afforded you the ability to um, buy a house and have a family. I'm, I've been very blessed. I don't. I can't. I can't. I. I don't know how or why. I know that I believe in a, a power and a God. I believe in God, and I believe. And I've seen. I've seen him work in my life more than once. Like I. I when I was. Having a, I was having a debate with an individual who didn't have a, a faith in in a God in God, and I, and he was like, he he posed, he said something like what 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 uh what makes you think there's a God? I'm like, let me tell you something. I've witnessed the, I've witnessed and felt the hand of God in my life so many times and it's if you're listening and you're paying attention you would too you know what I mean but um my mind was open my mind was open I was in I was things should have been things things were out of out of control and and uh and I was I was never never uh i was always taken care of i was always taken care of i was on my own i was able to feed myself i was able to feed my 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 family um anything most of the uh the darkness and and, and that happened when i was when i started to grow up and i was out on the street on my own was of my own doing you know what i mean but even then somebody was watching over me you know um, I was always, I was always blessed. Um, so I come from a neighborhood of blue collar union, uh, working people. Everybody has a, a good union job and, uh, probably has a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, there was, they, you know, my neighborhood, they ran a lot of the rackets and in, in the un in the unions in, in, in the area. They controlled construction. And yeah, they controlled a lot of the industry, right. especially the unions and stuff. And so um, people were working for these these uh, unions, and um, they evolved into, you know, higher higher uh, responsibilities in those unions and became heads and, and uh, I would say, at least influ influences, and they were friends, mm -hmm. you know, especially— me being on the street and being a hustler from the age of thirteen, you know, if you wanted pot, you'd come to you'd come to me. If you wanted coke, you'd come to me. So, no one's a saint. I knew everybody. I know who was doing what, and I knew everything. And and I, and I knew and they, and they, and they knew me. So, um, you know, even if it was even if it was a guy with a good job, a union, you know. Uh, you know, policeman didn't matter if he was off and he was off duty and he wanted to smoke a joint or something. He knew he come. He knew I was out there. I was on the block. Come see me. I'll, I'll take care of you. Every day, 
I'm not proud of none of this. And I'll say that um, it's all a lie. That life I lived is a complete facade lie. The the anger, the 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 harm I I I, I inflicted on people was all because I was hurting. Um, the image that I displayed was all because I was hurting and I wanted to be perceived differently. I was, I, I didn't want you to know who, who, who I really was. I was protecting. It was, it was a defensive mechanism for all that I was dealing with inside. And, um, but when I was on the street, um, oh, I eventually evolved and became exactly like my father. Um, the, the, the guy I described to you earlier, which was my father, eventually became me to the T. Um, my father became a pimp, chain dangling, fur coat wearing, hookers on the corner, pimp. I seen my father stab two women. I didn't see him stab them, but I seen the wounds seconds after they were, um, knives were plunged into their body. Um, he stabbed the one woman in the leg, and it was probably the worst stab wound I've ever seen anybody uh, get. She, and it was my knife. He, uh, I was in a room. He came. He knocked on my door. I was hanging out with my friends, and I had this really. At the time, I was into knives, and I had this one knife, and it was it was made with surgical steel. And uh, I was proud of it. It was my knife, surgical steel. Right. He knocks on my door. The music is blasting. We're in there smoking blunts. I I open the door. I'm like, Dad, what's going on? At the time, my, my house was a crack house. I had my own room, and I was selling drugs out of the house, and I was down on the corner. He says, uh, Papi, he goes, let, let me see a knife, because I had showed it off to him or whatever. He, he says, let me see a knife. So I pull it out of my back pocket. I pass it to him, and I close the door. So I slam the door. Yeah, get out of here. Get out of here. You know what I mean? And I have really no respect for him. And he was a drug addict. I was a pothead, but I and I was sniffing coke and shit. I, I went back to my friends and I'm hanging out. We're in, in my bedroom smoking and listening to music. A few seconds later, I open the door. Gracie thinks someone's at the door. <laughs> I hear banging at the door. I open the door. My father goes, "Here's your knife back. It's already been used. Just so you know." I said, "What?" So I I fucking pushed him aside and went outside into the living room of the apartment and, and one of his prostitute um, girls was in the, f in the corner on the floor holding onto her leg crying and I walked up to the the victim and I looked at her and I looked down and I seen her leg he stabbed her right in the thigh and it went all the way I mean it, all you seen was like she was a black girl and all you see with this big ass red hole, and it went all the way, all the way into her thigh, like far, and it was wide open, and you see the meat and the blood, and it was like really meaty, and it was like a raw piece of meat, like a steak. Um, and uh, and then he he stabbed he stabbed my stepmother as well, um, who oh one of those prostitutes. Be well, I I I think we we. I know, I know. It's like, how, how do I stop? I mean, yeah, this shit just well, doesn't end. 
Let's wrap it up with with just a a question that I'm sure there isn't necessarily an answer to it, but what do you, what work do you feel like remains for you personally to evolve forward into the guy that you want to be, which I assume is a guy who can stay sober? But don't let me put words into your mouth. I appreciate that, Paul. It's a, it's it's it's, it's really I, I appreciate you just uh, being able to um, to think of, of such a good question because it is it is something I, I I should consider or probably want have you know and uh, you know have have kids and um, I'm single income household. Mm-hmm. I uh, a lot a lot of people depend on me. I have three. Ki- I have four kids. Four kids, um, three that are eighteen and under. Um, they need me. You know, I never wanted to be. I never wanted to be what. I didn't want to see the things that I saw, and I've always wanted to give them better. And. uh I'm older. I, I want to be better. Um, I love my kids. I love my. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my blessings, and I and I'm grateful for them. And um, I've not done a great job at truly um, showing my gratitude. You know, um, and uh, so. I want to, I mean, I, so can you just repeat the question? What do you hope for as, as you move forward, uh, to try to grow into the person that you want to be, which I assume includes being able to maintain sobriety. What do you hope for in terms of your personal growth? I hope to, I hope to be able to move past and 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 move on from the past. I hope to be able to, because I live with trauma. I live with it's like a post traumatic stress disorder. Oh, I think that's clear. Yeah, <laughs> the um, images, the certain smells, certain things. I I, I live with flashbacks um, of situations and scenarios that I've been in. Um, Anything can trigger it. Um, I found relief in in spirituality. I found relief in the program. I found relief um, in fellowship in, the, in my friends. And uh, anytime I've anytime I've stayed and embraced that and those those qualities and those um, those gifts, my life was. Um, it was great. And I, I mean, I've been in, I've been, I've known you for 10 years and, uh, let's say 10 years to make it easy. Cause I've been, but I've been in California for almost 15. Mm-hmm. August will be 15. Um, but let's say 10 years in 10 years, I would say like I, I went out and relapsed multiple times. Right. But they've all lasted maybe a month two weeks and then I come back to the program right 
let's say three months. So if, I mean, for the better part of 10 years, I've been sober. Mm-hmm. If you add all of those relapses, if let's say it was 10 relapses, right? If it was 10 relapses and I got, and I, and each lasted a month, I was sober nine years. So I think I did learn a lot, but I, I struggle. I struggle with, uh, I struggle with something, Paul. I struggle with something. And, um, have you ever thought of, uh, trying EMDR therapy? I, I think it'd be worth a shot. I mean, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional, but people that I know who, struggle with PTSD uh m- many many people have found profound relief from doing EMDR therapy it's it's specifically it started as a way to treat vets returning from from war and um it it helps bring the trauma out of your body which is where know, I don't most, even know what that is we'll talk about it after it's it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing um but it it it's it can really work wonders, and uh, we will. I have somebody here locally that that I've worked with uh, before, and some of the effects um, for me were profound. Uh, I could feel my body felt lighter, lighter, and like it had been oiled, like my joints moved. You know, mm-hmm. I just you know somebody that I just recommended. Um, try it because he has just struggled so much with anger and he has done three sessions so far and he was hanging out with a buddy of his the other day and his buddy goes what what happened to the angry guy his friend just after three sessions his friend could tell that that the anger had lifted from uh, from him um yeah you know um i'd love to give it a shot yeah i'd love to give it a shot well, buddy, I appreciate you coming by and uh, opening up and uh, talking about such difficult, intense things. And I want to thank you for you know for your friendship over these last ten years. We've um, we've had a lot of laughs and so. a yeah, lot of great. hugs, man. And for you're sure. just somebody when you walk in a room. I'm just always fucking glad to see you. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate you asking me to to, to come over and talk. I, I apologize if I rambled and just was telling more stories and shit. No, no, because I, I, your story has always fascinated me, and and I, I wanted to to hear. I didn't want to just have that be the sum total of it. You know, I wanted to to hear who the the little kid is underneath that's well, still struggling with that. Hmm? Were you able to get a glimpse? I, yes, yes, yeah. I was. I think, and I think the listeners have. Um, yeah. And and that's one of the things I love about you is you you have not been crushed by it. That there's still this light inside you that is truly mir- miraculous. That you that you still have the capacity to love and to be sensitive and. To not be jaded and bitter, and and that I think is one of the things that I that I love about you. That's fucking weird. You just said that, dude. You're the second person that told me that this week. The second person in the fr- in the first, and you're the second person that's ever told me that. But the second person, <laughs> the second person, the first person only happened 
two, two, three days ago. Oh wow! A person who I had, who I'm, I've been having deep conversations with, and we've been, and uh, and he told me that that's cool, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I love you, pal. Love you too, man. Thanks. I've been wanting to have Kenny on for probably three, four years. I'm glad we finally got the chance to sit down and hear his his life story, as painful as it as it is. One of our sponsors for today is Squarespace. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. Their templates are beautiful. Their powerful e-commerce functionality helps you sell anything online their analytics help you grow your site in real time and everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box nothing to patch or upgrade ever buying domains is simple you get the the help you need with squarespace's 24 7 award-winning customer support squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers artists to gamers even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real Head to squarespace.com slash mental for a free trial. And I can tell you, uh, I have designed uh, websites with Squarespace, and it is as promised. And I found it really intuitive and simple and very happy with the results. So head to squarespace.com slash mental for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code mental to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash mental and use offer code MENTAL. This is from the Loves Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself, Holy shit, it's almost Christmas. And she writes, I love New York City around Christmas time. I love that feeling of motivation to clean my apartment. Oh my God, do I wish I had that one. I love being the big spoon for my giant boyfriend. I love buying a meal for someone in need. I love overcoming my... Uh, eating disordered thoughts and actually eating when I'm hungry and not within my pre-planned meals for the day and not feeling shame or anxiety for having a snack. Thank you for that. That has to be a really, really tough gorilla to dance with having uh, disordered eating because you got to eat. Any comments to make the podcast better i would love a survey only episode every now and then we have done survey uh, only episodes previously but it has been a little while there's a part of me that's always worried that that people don't like the surveys and there's a part of me that worries that people don't like everything that i do represent touch feel see taste or I'm generally interested in. <laughs> this is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lala. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, uh, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, her words. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was about eight or nine, I had, quote, inappropriate contact with a female babysitter who was about 12. There were multiple occasions of us kissing and fondling each other. I feel like this was primarily instigated by her, but I also feel I was a willing participant. Uh, 
I tend to downplay these incidents since we were the same gender and she was so young herself. I also assume that she must have had some kind of trauma in her past to have instigated these episodes with me. And this is a great example of the importance of separating someone's culpability or prosecutability, someone who has abused us, and the importance of just dealing with the feelings that were left in the wake of it. Because it's not about punishing that other person or assigning blame to them necessarily. It's about us processing the feelings that we stuff down or the feelings that remain with us. Um, I also assume that she must have had some kind of... Uh, so I cut her a lot of slack and tend to downplay the impact that these experiences had. Funny thing, I remember finally teaching reaching a point where I felt uncomfortable with what was happening, and so I lied and told her my mom found out and said we had to stop. I remember she was mortified. I might also be considered a, quote, perpetrator, and that around the same age, I coerced my younger brother, three years younger, to engage in kissing slash fondling with me on a handful of occasions. Same thing with a female cousin. She was a couple, couple years older than me, but had a much more passive personality, so I feel like the, quote, responsible one. All of this happened around the same time. I don't talk to the cousin much, but I do have a relationship with my brother. I've thought about bringing it up with him, but the thought makes me physically ill. Also, I wonder if 30 years later, it would just do more harm than good. I think that would be a good thing to talk to a trauma therapist about, someone that has experience and knowledge in childhood sexual abuse. Because this shit is complicated, especially if it involves people that are still in our lives or that we want to still be in our lives. Uh, I also have vague memories of other inappropriate occasions that I mostly block from my memory and don't really let surface. So bottom line, I'm not entirely sure what's true and what's not. For instance, I have a memory of my semi-drunk father, who interestingly later turned out to be gay, convincing me to dance with him in the dark with no one else around after he came home from some event. I was maybe 11. I remember feeling uncomfortable and like there was a weird sexual vibe, but I pushed it out of my mind. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother, with with whom I have a fabulous relationship now, was physically abusive and unstable when I was growing up. Two memories in particular come to mind. One, I was about eight and must have done something to upset her. She whipped me with a belt. Later, she took me to swim class at the YWCA, and as I was undressing, she, undressing, she must have seen marks because she made a comment like, I don't think you're feeling well. Let's skip class and just sit on the bleachers and watch. It wasn't until years later that I realized she didn't want anyone to see the belt marks. Two, I remember being around 11, my brother was 8, and my mom was driving these windy, treacherous roads heading up to Mount Hood in Oregon. I can't remember the context exactly, but I remember her saying something like, maybe I should just drive off the side of the mountain. I wonder what would happen. Wow. I remember feeling like this woman is sick and irrational, but I'm a kid and I have to survive until I can legally leave at 18. In fact, that was frequently how I felt about my mother. She's crazy, but I'm a kid, so I just have to survive until I'm old enough to leave. My father. My father was my absent hero. I revered and adored him. His approval meant everything to me, but as a, quote, high-powered attorney, 
Time with him was scarce, and I always felt like I was begging for crumbs of his attention. There are two occasions I remember that were particularly painful. One, I was about eight and struggling with math. My father is exceptionally good at math, but math does not come easily to me at all. I asked him to help me with my math homework. He was trying to explain, and it just wasn't clicking. He must have thought I was being deliberately obstinate and lazy because I just wasn't getting it and kept saying I don't understand, which was true. He called me a little shit and sent me away. I remember sitting on the stairs below his office feeling completely worthless. Two. Second memory, and by far the most painful. I was about 16 and my parents were on the verge of divorce. We were having one final dinner in a nice restaurant, a last-ditch effort at trying to save the facade of a happy, functional family. I was going through a really hard time. In retrospect, I think I was clinically depressed. About halfway through dinner, I started to uncontrollably cry. Not for attention. I swear I just couldn't hold it in. My mom got up and left the table. My father looked at me with what felt like such a hateful expression and said, What the fuck's the matter with you? That was the seminal incident that to this day, at nearly 40 years old, has made it virtually impossible for me to reach out to others for help and connection, even though I am desperate to connect with others in an authentic, meaningful way. I live a very isolated existence because I don't trust people not to hurt me, and much of the time I feel worthless. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, definitely. I actually have a very good relationship with my mother. In all honesty, she's probably my best friend. I think divorcing my father did her a world of good. She's become deeply religious, and as a self-identified agnostic slash atheist, we mostly avoid the topic of religion. She has quite an extensive trauma history herself, of which I know a little about, so I understand, quote, why she is the way she is. I also have a pretty good relationship with my dad. He's wealthy and has paid for my college education and has helped with the down payment on my condo. I'm grateful, but that money also complicates things. Our relationship is somewhat superficial. My dad values status, youth, and beauty. Growing up, I remember him weighing himself four to five times a day. In my 20s, there were brief periods where I was able to maintain the stereotypical thin, beautiful image slash persona, and I can tell that made him really proud. Now I'm 38, fat, and frumpy, and I'm sure I'm a disappointment in that regard, but he's savvy and compassionate enough not to address it. Darkest thoughts. Ugh, this topic. Sexually, I have some really fucked up interests. Even though this is an anonymous survey, I can barely stand to be honest. Anything with a power dynamic turns me on. The rougher, the better. Uh, male in control, female passive. I have a feeling I might be a latent pedophile. Not in real life. I've never seen a child and thought I'd like to do something sexual to him or her. Ever, thank God. But if I saw pictures of child porn, yeah, I can't deny it would probably turn me on. So far, I've managed to avoid scouring the internet for child porn because intellectually, I appreciate how incredibly damaging and awful it is. But yeah, that and violence against women are a turn-on, and the progressive feminist side of myself hates me for that. I've said this many, many times on the podcast, but really often, the things that turn us on are the things that we have anxiety about in real life, either from present-day situations or past situations and it is not 
at all a comment on who we are morally. It's what we do with the fantasies that, that matters. Darkest secrets. Oh, Jesus, so many. Right now, I lead a hermit-like functional life. Good job, good home in a good neighborhood. Don't socialize at all. My one thing is I am obsessed with trying heroin. I've heard it's the ultimate way to numb. You know the cliches and orgasm times at 10,000. I live in Portland and have tried to surreptitiously cop on the streets, but I don't know what I'm doing and haven't really been brave enough to try in earnest. I feel like I'm at a breaking point and it's just a matter of time. Thank you so much for going so, so deep on this one and being so honest. And it, I can feel the pain that, that you're in and the wanting to numb. And I, it, I'm sure it's probably even obvious to you, but the, you know, the answer isn't to run from your feelings, but to, to deal with them and find people who are healthy and trustworthy to help you process them. That's, that's the way to do it. Cause, but I got to tell you, you know, when I am in my support group and I hear people share about heroin or especially speed balls, which is a combination of Coke and heroin, I think, oh, I never got to do that. Boy, if I relapse, that's what I would want to do. That's that's the attic part of my brain that romanticizes that. Even though I've heard thousands of people in my years of sobriety talk about the hellish experience of being addicted to heroin or coke. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind, self-love, something who adores me and is physically attracted to me. I wonder if she meant someone. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, to some extent. And how did it go? It was a mixed bag. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't know. Relieved but numb. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Reach out. Isolation is toxic and kills. Thank you so much for that. This is from the love survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself, but what if they are saying shit behind my back. Uh, I love getting to spend time with people who understand, knowing that even for just a little while, I get to be me. That is a great one. My 80-pound dog awkwardly crawling on my lap instead of just jumping up. I love seeing someone take my advice and having it work out for them. I love secretly giving gifts to people or finding a way to help them without them knowing it's me. I don't want the credit. I just like when they are unexpected, unexpectedly given a reason to be happy. That is such a great one. I love the feeling I get when I don't engage obsessive thoughts. I can tell myself that the dickhead on the internet isn't worth spending any energy thinking about. It feels like I'm finally adulting. Any comments to make the podcast better? What if, and stay here with me, Paul, Paul got a pony and recorded the show whilst atop said pony. It's funny that you mention that because I have been doing the show since day one on horseback. It's a very, very still, heavily drugged horse. Well, I thought it was a horse. And then one day, somebody told me, you have been sitting on a llama. And I thought, that makes sense. Why the weird neck? 
that makes sense why all the cowboys avoid me at the saloon. And I'm caught between a rock and a hard place because I want to move to a pony, but I also like camels. And if you think about it, isn't that what a llama is? Kind of half camel, half pony? So maybe I'll stay where I am. Is anybody still listening? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself No More. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And also some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts and he doesn't elaborate on what happened. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused and doesn't elaborate on either of those. Darkest thoughts. I have a deep aversion to people. The notion of partnering with the dead is nice. I find necrophilia derogatory. I, I think he means the the word uh, necrophilia to be derogatory. They wouldn't leave you, judge you, say that it's not working out, that they have been seeing someone else. It would be unconditional and permanent love. I like the cold touch and I don't mind the smell. I've also thought of hurt, hurting others and en masse. They wouldn't laugh at me. Uh, but I don't want people to feel like I do, to feel bad. The thought of someone mentally unstable loving me, that undying fearless love for only me, no issue hurting others. They take me away and keep me just for them. Darkest secrets. I saw a guy OD and I didn't do a thing. Every moment since I have wanted to die. The shame and guilt is immense. I don't know what I would do. I, I don't think I would know what to do if somebody was ODing in, in front of me. You know? Other than maybe picking up the phone. Um, I think it's time to let go of that guilt because that is... That is not benefiting you. And I think whoever that person was that passed would not have wanted their death to haunt you. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Partnering with the dead physically and emotionally. Skeptical and fearful, no one will ever accept my interest. I don't know if that is true, at least in terms of role-playing. Um... You know, from what I understand, having sex with uh, someone who is dead is illegal, I believe. Um, so I don't think that would be a healthy route to express that. Um, but why couldn't you role play? There's a lot of people out there that are open-minded and probably have a a similar interest to you. And that can sometimes be something that really helps you feel more intimate with each other. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my former significant other, I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt you. I had no idea how much my mental health was bad, was so bad. My paranoia and pain was not yours. And I'm sorry uh, you were burdened with it. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be loved. Have you shared these things with others? 
Yes, it didn't go badly. They said they shared the fantasy, but we never role-play or anything. I fear now it was a lie to comfort me. Well, have you brought it up again? You might bring it up again. And then you'll know. You know, one of the things that my therapist uh, has kind of ingrained in me is don't mind-read people in your life or your partner especially. You know, be willing to have those conversations to bring those things up because that builds intimacy. And, and not doing it can really drive you apart. How do you feel after writing these things down? Odd. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope you find someone to share these needs. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. that. That must be a lot to keep inside. You know, I think any, any of us that have parts of ourselves that we're afraid to show to others for fear of being judged, even if it's just thoughts bouncing around in our head, it's, it's, um, it's hard. It's hard. This is from the love survey filled out by Kat Marie, and she writes, I love my best friend. I met her in seventh grade, and I've never connected with someone more. She is my soulmate. I understand everything about her, and she understands everything about me. I know what unconditional love is because of her. How, how fitting that that was the, the next survey. Thank you. I love that. This is also from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Anon. And she writes, I love waking up without an alarm. I love pillow talk with my partner at the end of the day when we keep saying, okay, I'm going to bed and roll over. I love when authority figures like doctors, lawyers, or bosses, or even my conservative traditional grandmother swears. It is a great one. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself nice DJ voice. She writes, I love when my friends or even my coworkers come to me for emotional support. I feel honored when people feel safe sharing their lives with me. I wasn't always able to be a safe person. And I know that gradually facing my own pain has taught me how to be a better friend. I love the opportunity to give love to people around me. Oh man, do I love that one. I love that one. That is one of the best parts of being alive, when our struggles can can help us connect to somebody else who's also struggling. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Slumberjack. Uh, and they write, oh, Gracie's, Gracie's sees a leaf moving outside, sound the alarm about her ADD. Dinner is burned, voicemail box is full, laundry is wet and waiting to be dried for two days, but at least I cleaned up my project that I never finished on my desk. About their anxiety, you know those muscles under your butt cheeks? They've been clenched for 26 years and I am just now learning I'm not supposed to be tightening my entire body as if to make myself so small no one will see me. You haven't fully relaxed until your butt cheeks feel like butter. That is a t-shirt. About their PTSD. One harmless teasing poke to my side belly will cast heat all over my body, render my mind blank with white rage, and cause me to swing my arms at whoever inflicted the unwanted touch to my body. Tickle me and I'll lay you out flat. About their anger issues. 
I'm quiet, contained, non-confrontational, but when my dad invalidates my entire being, it's like a pipe inside myself bursts and shoots hot steam out of my mouth like a dragon. My ears go mute like a bomb went off, and I can see red all around me. I scream, and it is an unbelievable release, and I hate to admit it feels good. Snapshot from their life. I spend my extra time educating doctor, doctor's offices, clinical professionals, high school faculty, and students, etc., about transgender awareness, inclusion, and I speak to my own experience as well. It's been the most rewarding work I've done. I've helped save the lives of trans kids more than I thought possible. Plus, cisgender people learn a lot about their own gender and social constructs that hold them back in being authentically themselves. I've transformed lives, but the moment I step into my own house, my father strips away all my pride with single dismissive comments or patronizing looks. To him, I am weak in wasting my life because I don't have a typical job or career. He's so consumed in Fox News and debating things that are factual that he no longer is in touch with himself or reality. By the way, I'm pretty sure he is gay and is hiding some, hiding himself away for all these years and therefore cannot accept the way I live because I remind him too much of himself. Thank you for that. And kudos on the important work that you are doing. That is really, really cool. And this is our last survey. This is filled out by, uh, this is the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Donut Snowflakes. Oh, look, it's, it's snowing donuts. Uh, she writes, I love when a person with dentures takes their teeth out and they smile the biggest, most genuine, real smile, warms the soul instantly. <laughs> I love that one. Oh my God, do I love that one. Uh, just a reminder about our uh, sponsor, OMG, yes, uh, in partnership with Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute researchers, OMG, yes, ask tens of thousands of women what was the one discovery you've made that really made your pleasure better. They found the patterns in those discoveries and organized all that wisdom into a website, omgyes.com, so everyone can make a great thing even better, women, men, and couples. Visit omgyes.com slash mental to learn more and for a special discount. That's omgyes.com slash mental. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast, especially those of you that, that support it through Patreon. You're such an important part of, of keeping this this podcast going, and we can always use more donors. There's a link to all the different ways you can support the podcast if you if you feel so inclined. Also links to all the advertisers that we mentioned. Uh, but most importantly, the whole reason I started this podcast is I wanted people to know that they are not alone. And while our external lives may vary greatly from person to person, our internal lives are so incredibly universal and that's what matters and that's the thing that connects us and if you're out there and you're stuck and you're feeling alone you are you are not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird